preached at the old building, and as we came down the road, I said, uh, I don't even recognize much of this road anymore. This may not even actually be the same road. I'm not sure. But we came around the corner and saw this beautiful facility here, not realizing that you've been in it just a short amount of time before the pandemic hit and then kind of changed and altered all of our lives a little bit. But wow, how beautiful. And then to come inside the building and experience the warmth that's here on the part of the members of this church, it almost overwhelmed us when we came in. Don't ever let that change. Can I hear an amen? Don't you ever let that change. Uh, people that visit here will uh, keep coming back if you keep operating that way. And it is a blessing and a delight to be here. Let me introduce a couple of guests that are with me. I apologize. My wife could not be with me today, Lord willing, in September when we're here. Hopefully she'll be able to make her way over. But she's a pianist at our home church, and she's been out of town with me a lot and going to be out of town with me a whole lot more. And so today is a big day at the church, and so she just felt like she needed to be there. I apologize for that. But I do have two friends, one from college that uh, we played ball together in college. Uh, he was a pastor in Tennessee as well as Georgia. And uh, maybe I think one other place, but I've preached South Carolina. I've preached in all the churches where he was a minister. That's Dr. Steve Townsend. Would you mind standing, Steve? And he was in town for our event yesterday in Valdez, or rather in Vail, North Carolina. And uh, our, our event called United We Stand. And so they stayed over. And so he said, I'll go with you. And then his son, Drew is here. Drew, would you mind standing? And we appreciate you being here as well. And thank God for them. You get to know them uh, before we leave today. But it is a blessing and a delight to be here. And uh, I want to share something with you as I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Proverbs chapter number 34. When uh, we did our first crusade in Washington, D.C. under a massive tent back in 2002, there was a French film crew that had come through Washington, D.C. And Brother Steve, they were on their way uh, from the West Coast all the way to the East Coast. They'd been in the United States for three months, and they were doing a film called American Life, and they were filming things on the West Coast. They were coming across the central part of the United States. They stopped off in South Dakota at uh, Mount Rushmore, and then they came all the way to the East Coast of D.C. and ended their trip and their video in uh, Washington, D.C. And they did not know, we did not know that they were there. They did not know they, we were there under a massive tent with four big white red, white, and blue American flags flying from the top of the tent. And so they came by one afternoon and they asked our crusade coordinator, can we do an interview with that guy pointing to me? And uh, he said, well, I'll check with Brother Kissler. I said, absolutely be glad to do an interview. It's supposed to be 30 minutes, stretched out to be about an hour. And as the guy asked me question after question uh, about the United States of America, how faith and patriotism intersect in the United States of America. And here's how he asked the question. He said, preacher, he said, in France, where I'm from, faith and patriotism never intersect. Help me understand, help us understand, those that will watch our movie, help them understand how in the United States of America, faith and patriotism intersect. And I said, well, can you look right down there at that 555-foot-tall monument called the Washington Monument? It's the tallest structure in Washington, D.C. At the pinnacle of that monument, when it was completed in the 1880s, they put two words in Latin at the top of that monument. Those two words are these, Laus Deo. Laus Deo, that in English means literally praise be to God. Praise be to God. I went on and talked about the verses of Scripture that are etched on the stone on the inside of the Washington Monument. I don't know if any of you have ever done this before you had to take the elevator, but I've walked from bottom to top when I was much younger uh, of the inside of the Washington Monument, and about a third of the way up, there's a verse of Scripture. About halfway up, there's a verse. And as you get toward the top, Exodus 38, 6, just a portion of it that says this, holiness unto the Lord. That verse and two others are etched into the stone as you work your way up the inside of the Washington Monument. I said, my point is... Is simply this. 
Everything about America breathes that God has been involved in this country. God birthed this country. God has blessed this country. And faith and patriotism have always intersected in the United States of America. Now, here's what's awesome about that. He said, I'm going to use everything you've shared. Well, I said, i got one final thing I want to share. And I just shared the gospel message about how we can know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Do you know they put every bit of that into that film that was shown all over Europe? And I said, would you send me a copy of it? He did. It was in French. I'd have it translated for me. But uh, they put everything in that I said. And uh, you never know how God's going to work. But folks, I want you to understand what you're doing here today is not the norm in the United States of America. I go into churches all the time, Brother Steve, uh, all the time, sometimes, not all the time. But they are not like this. They're not patriotic like this. Sometimes, some churches, you'll find it very difficult to find an American flag. Can I say this? If you cut Dave Kistler, I bleed red, white, and blue. And I'm never going to apologize for that. I don't think I should have to apologize for that. Neither should you. We live in the most unique country in all the world. And in the last 35 years, going on 36 years, as I've traveled the world, England, France, Belgium, Scotland, Wales, Canada, Mexico, West Indies, India, Africa, Israel, and most recently, South Korea, all of that preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. As much as I love those places and the people in those places, when my plane lands in Charlotte, North Carolina, if I didn't have to get out of the plane via a tube and go through the tube into the terminal, if I could get down to the tarmac, I'd take my lips. I'd kiss American soil. I'm so glad to be back in the greatest piece of real estate on God's green earth called the United States of America. We're blessed to live here. And so what you're doing here today is beyond fitting. It is appropriate. And I want you to know this as a preacher who travels. Uh, I don't see this all the time, but my heart was doing cartwheels when I walked in. And I thank God so much for what God is doing here. Thank God for your dear pastor. I love Steve Pope. I just want to say this. I love Brother Steve Pope, his family. I thank God for how God's used him here. And I thank God for every one of you. And I hope you'll praise God this day in a renewed way, in an appreciative way for the United States of America, that God has given us this wonderful country. And I thank God for it. One final thing I want to do, and that is this. In late February, before the pandemic got started, uh, our ministry, Hope Ministries International, our DC arms called Hope to the Hill. We have two staffers up on Capitol Hill full time. Our son, Nathan, is our director up there. He's 30 years of age. You say that's young. Well, DC is a young person's city, all right? You see all the old guys on TV that are the uh, senators and congressmen, congresswomen that you think are the power brokers. I'm here to tell you the real power brokers in DC are not the old people. The power brokers are the staffers. They're the ones that write the legislations. They're the ones that read the legislation. They make recommendations to the member of Congress for whom they work about that legislation. Do they vote on it? Do they not vote on it? So really, in many ways, the power brokers are the young people, and our son Nathan's 30, so he's at the upper end of where most of those staffers are, but he's our director. And then we have a 74-year-old gentleman by the name of Dr. George Roller, who for 16 years, Brother Steve, uh, was the head of Dr. D. James Kennedy's ministry in Washington, D.C. And then when Dr. Kennedy passed away, that ministry took a little bit different emphasis. I don't mean theologically. I just mean as far as practical emphasis and ceased being as much about evangelism and discipleship 
And Brother George said, Dave, I know that's your heartbeat. I know that's what you and Nathan do. I'd love to work with you guys. So about three years ago, he came on. It's been a marriage made in heaven. He's 74, Nathan's 30, and I'm in the middle at 60 years of age, all right? And uh, it's at that point, folks, you're supposed to say, Brother Dave, you don't look 60. But none of y'all are saying that, so I feel like I need to respond to that. But anyway, the fact of the matter is this. We got all the bases covered in D.C., but we were there in February. Uh, every three months, we visit every single member of Congress. We go in their office, visit with the congressman, the senator. Be like you visiting every home in your community every three months. Well, that's what we do on Capitol Hill. And we were presenting this beautiful pen. By the way, I'm wearing one on my lapel. It's in the shape of the U.S. Capitol, in the dome of the Capitol. It has a three-word question that we ask every member of Congress when we part company with them. We may be in their office and get ready to leave. We may be out on the street, bump into them, maybe in the halls of the office buildings. And as we part company, we always ask this question, can we pray? Can we pray for you? And you know what? Prayer's free. We have never been turned down one time, not one time. And so uh, we put this into this pen. In the dome, it just says, can we pray down here at the base of the pen? It has our ministry, Hope to the Hill. And we've distributed one of these to every single member of Congress and asked them to do something. Put that on your lapel. And then would you join us? We're asking you as members of Congress to join us in praying that God would bring revival to the United States of America. You say, preacher, are they even interested in that on Capitol Hill? Many of them are not, but there are a lot of committed believers in Congress. They get no airtime on the news. They don't talk to them much on the news, but they're there. They love Jesus with all their heart. There are two ladies that every time the House of Representatives is in session, they are walking, preacher, the entire time. My son challenged them to do this. One from Washington State, one from Georgia, and they both are members of Congress. They'll walk the outside aisle, around the back, down this aisle, and they're praying for every member of Congress and praying for revival the entire time the house is in session. You can watch them do that on C-SPAN. Does everybody hear what I'm saying? Can I hear an amen right there? There are people up there that love the Lord and despite everything you're seeing on the news, I want you to know God's alive and well on Capitol Hill. So it was stirring to watch members of Congress take their congressional pen off. It's a circular pen and it identifies them as a member of Congress, gets them through security into the House chamber or Senate chamber without having to go through the airport style security that we all have to go through. It was amazing to watch them take that pin off and put this one right up on their lapel and wear it proudly. Now, the reason I'm telling you all that is I want you to understand a little of what's going on on Capitol Hill, but I also want to do this. I want to present one of these to your preacher, uh, Pastor Steve Pope. Brother, I love you more than I can tell you and thank God for you, and I hope that'll be a blessing to you. God bless you. Can we give him a round of applause today? Amen. Proverbs 14, verse number 34, if you would, please. Proverbs 14, verse number 34. By way of introduction, let me just say this. Uh, this verse was framed behind a piece of glass hanging on a wall in the home where my twin brother and I grew up. Our daddy was a pastor for about 42 years over in the Hickory area of North Carolina. So this verse was hanging there. Every day I saw it, and just to be quite honest with you, I thought, man, that's a simple verse. It's just two simple statements. I understand what it's saying. And, folk, I'm just going to be honest with you. I didn't have a clue what this verse was talking about. You say, Brother Dave, what do you mean? I want you to look at Proverbs 14, 34. It's appropriate for today and where we are in our country and in our world. It says this, righteousness exalteth a nation. But sin is a, would you say the next word out loud? Sin is a what? 
reproach to any people. Folks, I'm just being honest. I thought I understood what it meant for righteousness to exalt a nation. I thought I understood what it meant for sin to reproach any people. I'm just being as honest as I can be today. I didn't have a clue what that was talking about. You say, Brother Dave, what do you mean? Now, what I'm going to do this morning very quickly is this. I want to define a couple of terms to you. I want to explain those. I want to give a little bit of application and illustration. And we're going to be done and go back to our respective ranches or wherever we're going to go have lunch today. I want you to look at the first phrase, righteousness exalteth a nation. The word exalteth, I thought I understood what that means. Folk, I'm being honest, I did not have a clue what that really meant. Now, I'm not trying to impress you this morning, but I do want you to learn something. My dad used to say this, brother. He said, I know a little Greek and I know a little Hebrew. He said, the little Greek runs a restaurant, the little Hebrew runs a clothing store. That's my knowledge of a little Greek and a little Hebrew. But you do understand the Old Testament, originally inspired by God, was breathed out in the Hebrew language. And the word exalteth in Proverbs 14, 34 is an interesting Hebrew word. Can I do this, Brother Steve? I'm not trying to be, can I stand up on this chair? Is that okay? I'm not trying to be disrespectful or damage furniture or anything in the house of God, okay? Uh, I want to do this, all right? I'm going to stand up right here. And what I've just done now, I'm guessing, is elevate myself about 15 to 18 inches above where I was when I was standing on the floor. By the way, this elevated perch affords me a great opportunity. I can now see into the laps of most of you. Uh, if you've got your phone out texting me, you may want to put it away. I'm taking notes. I'm taking notes, brother. Okay, all right, I'll accept that. Fact of the matter is, I can not only see your faces, I can see into your lap. And this elevated perch affords me a distinct advantage. You say, what does that have to do with the word exalteth? Literally in Hebrew, the word exalteth means this. Righteousness elevates to a prominent place, a nation. Let me repeat that. Righteousness elevates to a prominent place, a nation. And by the way, in the Hebrew, it's not just a one-time elevation. It is an elevation that occurs at one moment, but the ramifications of it continue for a long time into the future. Is everybody with me? So literally, it means this. Righteousness elevates a nation, elevates it to a prominent place, and keeps it there. Righteousness elevates to a prominent place a nation and keeps it there. You say, preacher, why is America unique in the nations of the world? Why do we drive the cars we drive? Why do we live in the homes we live in? Why do we worship in the beautiful churches we worship in? Why do we wear the clothes we wear? Well, Brother Dave, we're an entrepreneurial people. You know, though that's true, that's not the reason we're so blessed. Well, Brother Dave, we're a resilient people. We come back from hardship and crisis. Unlike it, that's true. We are a resilient people. But that's not the reason why we live unlike any other people. We live the way we live because of the blessing of God on our nation. Righteousness, the foundation of this country, elevated us to a prominent place and has sustained us in that place of prominence for 244 years. We are celebrating America's 244th birthday. Wow. Now let me give you just a little explanation. Any of you remember the first permanent English settlement that came to the shores of America? Anybody remember the year they came? All right, I know I'm asking a little bit. In 1607, the first permanent, permanent English settlement came to the shores of America in 1607. Anybody remember where they settled? It was in Virginia. James A. Plus, Jamestown, Virginia, 1607. Got a historian, praise the Lord. So first permanent English settlement came to the shores of America, settled in Jamestown, Virginia. It's called the Jamestown Plantation in 1607. Advanced forward 13 years. Second permanent English settlement that came to the shores of America came and settled in 1620 in Plymouth, Massachusetts. They were called uh, the Plymouth Colony. Now, just an interesting trivia a piece of information. Do you know the Plymouth group preacher intended to land in, in, in Virginia? They were given a charter. 
the Plymouth Group, 1620, a charter from the King of England to land in Virginia. Here's where God entered the picture. He sent a storm along and blew them way north. They ended up not only not landing in Virginia, they landed in Massachusetts, which means a couple of things. One of which is this, their charter for Virginia from the King of England was no longer valid because they didn't land in Virginia. So they wrote their own charter before they exited the ship and put their feet on Plymouth Rock. By the way, that charter is called the Mayflower Compact. And in the Mayflower Compact, they expressed while they were coming to this country, they said, and I quote, we are coming for, quote, the advancement of the Christian faith and for the propagation of the gospel. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So this ought to answer the question. Was America founded as a Christian nation? Absolutely we were. Now we're not living like one right now, but we were certainly founded as such. So 1607, Jamestown, Virginia, 1620, second permanent English settlement, Plymouth, Massachusetts, advanced forward 11 more years. The year's now 1631. Third permanent English settlement that came to the shores of America settled also in Massachusetts in a place called Massachusetts Bay. They were called the Massachusetts Bay Colony. 1607 Jamestown, 1620 Plymouth, 1631 Massachusetts Bay. Now stay with me. 16 years after the settling of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1631, in 1647... There was a law passed in Massachusetts Bay that had a very interesting name to the law. It was called that Old Deluder Satan Act. By the way, any law to this day that's passed in Congress is called an act, A-C-T. For example, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Any of y'all remember that one? It's supposed to repair about seven years ago. It's supposed to repair the road systems in America. Anybody remember this? Okay, I've traveled the roads. I'm not sure where they spent that $790 billion, but it wasn't on the roads of America. They're called acts. 1647, the old deluder, the word deluder means deceiver, that old deceiver Satan act. You say, preacher, what did the old deluder, the old deceiver Satan act do in Massachusetts Bay in 1647? What it did was start public education in the colony. It basically said this. It said anytime a community in Massachusetts Bay reaches 50 families, they have to hire a teacher to teach the children of those 50 families. When any community in Massachusetts Bay reaches 100 families, they have to start a school. Now, contrary to the revisionist version of history, public education in America didn't start with John Dewey and it didn't start with Horace Mann. It started in 1647 with the old deluder Satan Act. Do you know what the act literally says? I'm going to quote it to you. By the way, not going to quote all of it. It's lengthy. It's a little bit verbose. I'm just going to quote the first couple of statements in it. Here's what it says. It begins, the Old Deluder Satan Act, 1647, starting public education in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It said this, quote, It being the chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the Scriptures. And I'll not quote the rest of it. You say, wait a minute, preacher, wait, 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 I thought this thing was starting education, public education. It was. Well, then why would it start with this phrase, it being the chief project of that older looter Satan, to keep men from the knowledge of the Scriptures? Can I tell you, folks, they were starting schools and hiring teachers to teach kids to read. They were trying to teach them to read so a preacher they could primarily read one volume, the one that the wicked one wants to keep away from kids, and that's the Bible. 
It being the chief project of that old deceiver Satan to keep men from the knowledge. We're going to teach kids how to read so they can read what God has. Can I hear an amen? amen. By the way, that foundation did something for America. It elevated us amen. to a prominent place. And it has sustained us there for 244 years. By the way, we're living on the residuals on the overflow of what happened back then. Because pretty much we have kicked God out of everything in America, haven't we? Not you, not me, not our homes, not our church. But as far as much of what goes on in public, it is a God-abandoned place in most places. Now, if you teach in a public school, can I say this? I thank God for you. I thank God you're a missionary or trying to be to the public school system. But you have to be honest. As a vast rule, general rule, God is not welcome in public school anymore. But it was started. It was started. To teach kids to read so they can learn to read the Bible. Righteousness elevates to a prominent place a nation. Look at the next phrase though. But sin, folks, sin's a different story, isn't it? Sin is a, would you say the word again? Sin is a what? Reproach to any people. Now stay with me as I try to explain. Again, I'm not trying to impress you, but I want you to learn something. The word, the Hebrew word that is translated reproach in Proverbs 14, 34 is a word that is used 12 times in the Old Testament. 12 times. Once here, Proverbs 14, 34, and 11 other places. By the way, context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. So you don't just look at the definition of a word. You look at it in its context to understand what it means. You say, preacher, help me understand that. Let me just use the word, the English word bad, B-A-D. Do you know if you were to look that up in Webster's Dictionary? Here's how bad is defined. Awful, terrible, of poor quality. Bad. But if you're in an automobile, like my son used to sit behind me in our Ford F-350, crew cap dually 7.3 liter turbocharged diesel engine pickup. Does that send a chill up anybody's spine? Where, where are my Ford people in the room? Ford people, come on, raise your hand. Real high, real, okay, yeah. Ford people, real high, okay. All right, everybody else look around. These are the folk that are already in revival right now. Okay, the Ford, Chevy people, Chevy people in the room. Okay, these are the folk that are in desperate need of revival right here. Dodge people, any Dodge people? Okay, you know what my brother, he said, Dodge is like kissing your sister. It doesn't do anything for you. That's what he told me anyway. All right, now. We'd be traveling down the highway in our 4350, and my son would be seated right behind me, preacher, and he'd do this. He'd go, Dad, and I'd go, what, what? He'd say, look over there along the frontage road. There goes one bad car. I'd look over there. I didn't see one awful, one terrible, one of poor quality car. I'm looking at a Dodge Viper. Whoo, that'll get your blood pumping, won't it, a Dodge Viper? Bad means good, Right? So a word's got to be defined in its context. Are you with me? This word reproach is used 12 times in the Old Testament. Once here, 11 other places. One of the places that this same word that is translated reproach here in the Hebrew is used is in 1 Samuel 17. Now don't turn, just stay with me. I'm going to move quickly. In 1 Samuel 17, there's a well-known story where a young shepherd boy goes out to fight a giant by the name of Goliath who was almost 10 feet tall. How many of you remember the story? Okay. Remember, I love this preacher. Remember how Jesse, David's daddy, says, Son, I want you to take these food items to your brothers that are, operative word here, fighting, fighting in Saul's army. Remember this? David, David was a teenager, okay? He was 16, 17, no more, no more than 18 years of age. And his daddy is saying, Take these food items to your brothers that are fighting in Saul's army. Do you know David is pumped? Let me tell you why. He's not only going to get to see his brothers, he might get to see a fight break out. 
Can, can, I, can I have agreement from the men? Men, are you with me? We, we are conflict-oriented. We're conquest-oriented. Right? We want to participate. We want to compete. We want to win. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> By the way, it's on my bucket list. was on it for years. I've got it checked off now. I wanted to get into the ring with an MMA fighter. I've got a buddy who fights professionally out of Brick, New Jersey. Nick Catone's gym. Anybody follow the MMA game and know who Nick Catone was? He was, I thought, was he middleweight champion at one? I know this. In one of his final fights, he tore his ACL on his right knee in round one and won in round three on one leg. That's a different breed of man. Would you agree with me? My friend said, Dave, you stay over when the meeting ends Thursday. We'll go to Nick Catone's gym, and I'll put the gloves on you. We'll go through the MMA workout, and I'll put you in the ring and let you learn a little bit about MMA fighting. Now, I did some boxing in high school, okay? So I knew a little bit about how to throw a punch. But that, when I got there, they said, we're going to teach you how to throw a punch with more leverage and kick, you know, with more leverage. Well, anyway, uh, we did push-ups. Not a problem. I've done that a lot. We did jump rope. Not a problem. We did sit-ups. Really not a problem. And then my friend, my friend, brother, put gloves on me, take my hands, put gloves on me, MMA gloves put me in the ring with a professional MMA fighter who outweighed me by 80 pounds. He said, he's going to teach you how to throw punches, block punches, throw kicks and block kicks. Preacher, we got through it. I felt good. We went and had a steak dinner afterwards. Do you know the next morning I woke up, it hurt to put my feet on the floor for seven days. I went to put shaving cream on my face and looked and from... Right here on my wrist and my elbow, it wasn't blue. It was black from trying to block punches from a guy who outweighed me by 80 pounds. Last year, my friend said, hey, you want to do the workout again? I said, no, sir, I got that out of my system. I'm ready to move on. I think I'm good. Listen, we guys are interested in that. You say, preacher, that's brutal. I know, but I love it. I love it. 16, 17, 18 years old. Carry these items to your brothers fighting in Saul's army. Put them in the carriage. Tools down here to the Valley of Elah. By the way, I've been in the Valley of Elah, preached in the Valley of Elah in Israel. He arrives at the Valley of Elah just as the champion of Gath, 10 feet tall, guy by the name of Goliath, steps out of the army of the Philistines on that hillside. There's a hillside here where Israel would have been. He comes down in the middle of the valley and Goliath issues a taunt that he has been issuing for 40 days. I'm going to modernize the taunt. He says this, men of Israel, there's no need in all of us shedding blood today. In fact, there's really no need in all of us even breaking a sweat today. Put forth your best individual warrior. Send him down into the middle of the valley. I will meet him there. We'll have one-on-one, hand-to-hand combat. If your guy were to defeat me, then we the Philistines will be your servants. But if I defeat him, which by the way is going to happen, then you guys have to be our servants. Give me a man that we may fight together. How many of you remember this? And at that, the men of Israel flee to their tents. David is left standing there, preacher, with the carriage and the keeper of the carriage. And he's looking around going, where, 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 where'd all the men folk go? And the keeper of the carriage says, have you not seen that dude? Look at him. Look at the height of that guy. Look at the muscles on that dude. He's been taunting us for 40 days. And every day, the men have been fleeing to their tents. Nobody will take him on. And David, 16, 17, 18-year-old teenage boy, says, well, if nobody else will... Uh, I'll give it a shot. Don't you love this? Over here comes the servant. He comes into King Saul's tent and he says this, King, <laughs> evidently there's one born every second. We got to take her for the big dude. We do. Bring me this seasoned warrior. So they go back to get David. Do you know how 1 Samuel 17 describes David? He was ruddy. Where ruddy means red. 
And by the way, I used to think that many had red rosy cheeks, which may have been the case. But the Bible indicates he was withal ruddy, all over ruddy, which may have meant he had red hair. Red skin tone, yes, red hair, which would have made him look distinctly different than all his own brothers and all the other men of Israel who would have had dark skin, dark eyes, dark hair. He was withal ruddy, listen to the rest of it, and of a fair countenance. See, preacher, what does that mean? Fair countenance in Hebrew means this. He hadn't begun to shave yet. So get the picture. Over there stands a seasoned warrior. They bring a young man who is perhaps red-headed, certainly red skin tone, peached, fuzzed face kid, and they introduce him to the king and said, King, here's the guy going to take down the big dude. And King Saul says what everybody else is thinking. He says, and I quote, Thou art not able to fight him, for thou art but a youth. And he is a man of war from his youth. Do you remember this? Son, you don't stand a chance. Now, I love this boy, David. He says, King, I don't think you understand who my God is. Preacher, aren't you afraid of the virus? Folk, listen to me. I have never one time denied the reality of the virus. It is real. What I question is our response to the virus. Man, this virus is about as smart as any virus I've ever seen. Man, you can load up at the checkout line at Walmart, and that virus knows to leave you alone at Walmart. Leave you alone at Target. Leave you alone at Lowe's or Home Depot. But man, it'll affect you and get you if you come to church. That's insanity. Preacher, you, you don't know. My wife and I were in France when France became a hot zone. We were there. I didn't wear a mask. If you want to wear a mask, that's fine. I, I, there's nothing wrong with wearing a mask. But it ought to be your choice. It ought not be government mandated. It ought to be your choice. We washed our hands. We were around people, I mean, right on top of you in the subways. I've never been on so many crowded subways. Concerned if we, we may not get home. They may not let us fly home. We got home two days later. They totally shut the country down. That's been four months ago. I'm as healthy as I've ever been. Amen. Never got it. At least if I did, I didn't have any symptoms. All I'm saying is this. I determined this. I am not going to live my life in fear. I'm going to live my life in faith. Now, I'm not going to be stupid. I'm, I'm, I'm going to wash my hands. I'm going to practice the protocols we ought to be doing anyway. But I refuse to live my life in fear. I'm going to live my life in faith. I'm not going to run from things. I'm going to run. T- I love, I love 2 Samuel 23, 20. Pardon the aside. Where Benaiah, one of David's mighty men, the Bible just says this about him. He chased a lion into a pit in a time of snow and killed it. That's all it says. He chased a lion into a pit. Think about this. Most Bible scholars say the pit was the lion's den. Very familiar territory to the lion. Very unfamiliar to this guy named Benaiah. It was a time of snow. Have you figured out when it's cold weather, especially those of us who are older, our, our, our limbs don't work quite like they used to. They don't work that way anyway. But anyway, especially in cold weather. So it's every disadvantage to Benaiah. It's the lion's den. It's cold, snow, probably slick. But he chased a lion into its den and killed it in a time. You know what? I said this. I'm not going to run from anything in fear. I'm going to run to stuff in faith. We ought to chase the roar. Can I hear an amen? We ought to run to the roar. Wow. Wow. David says, King, I don't think you understand my God. See, I'm a tender of sheep. I've been taking care of my dad's sheep. And on two occasions, one time it was a lion, another time it was a bear, came out and tried to rob sheep from my dad's flock. And you know what God did? He allowed me to kill a lion and a bear. By the way, the bear, he says this, I tracked the old boy down and extracted, delivered a sheep out of its mouth. 
I know David wasn't a Baptist preacher. I'll tell you why. He's got the sheep bedded down for the night. Here comes a bear, carries one of them off. He didn't say, let that one go and protect what I got. He said, no, what do you think you're doing? You come back here. And he chased the bear down, extracted the sheep, killed the bear. I like this boy, don't you? King, God used me to kill a lion and a bear. And if you'll just turn me loose, the big mouth dude over there, he's going to be just like one of them. Wow. Here comes King Saul. Okay. Bring my armor. They bring Saul's armor, put it on David. Do you remember this? It engulfed him. He could have moved his whole family into the armor with him. He says basically this. Thanks, king, but no thanks. With all due, he, what I love, the, the phrase he uses is, I've never proved this. I've never waged warfare. One time wearing this. This is unfamiliar. Get it off of me. Thank you, king, but no thank you. What are you going to fight him with? And David holds up a sling. Well, take him down with this and a stone. To which the king says this, preacher, I love this. He says, go and the Lord be with thee. <laughs> In other words, you're taking that to fight that. It's going to have to be God that's with you because we're out of here. Go. Only he wouldn't have said it like that. You know he's the king, right? Kings have the Darth Vader voice, right? I can hear him. Go and the Lord be with thee. <laughs> you ever heard somebody pray that way? Forgive me, I'm not, they, they don't talk that way normally. You know, they just talk like this, you know. Comes time to pray and they go to, oh Lord. <laughs> you know when they do that, I take my right hand, put it on my wallet and hold on to it. I mean, that's weird. Something wrong there. Go and the Lord be with thee. David exits King Saul's tent, walks down in the middle of the valley Stops and pauses. By the way, I've done this myself. I've been at that brook. There's no water in it really much unless they have a driving rain. But there's still smooth stones in the brook. And I got me five of them. Put them in my pocket, took them home, and lined them up on my desk in Conley Springs. Can I hear an amen? amen. amen. David stops and he scoops up five smooth stones. He pouches four, inserts one into his sling, and advances toward a 10-foot-tall giant. Let me ask you a question. He's only got one target. Why does he need five rocks? Yes. The Bible indicates that Goliath had four brothers equally as tall as him. You know what I think old David's thinking? Hey, I'm here. I'm in the valley. I've made the journey to get here. Let's take the whole clan out while I'm here. Amen. Don't you wish America fought wars like that? Hey, we were in the Gulf in 92. Why don't we just finish the job? Five smooth stones. Pouch four, cert one. Advances toward Goliath. And Goliath sees David coming. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 17, he looked at David and he said, what, what am I? <laughs> what am I? My dog? That you come to me with rocks and sticks? Son, I'm going to feed your carcass to the fowls of heaven today. You know what David said? He said, excuse me, sir, you got it backwards. I'm going to feed your carcass to the fowls of heaven today. And all the earth is going to know that there's a God in Israel. I love this boy. Teenager. When he says that, Goliath looks at him and the Bible says he does two things. He curses David. By the way, I'm not trying to be graphic or gross here, but you need to understand what that literally means. It means in Hebrew, he called down curses. It means he did this. You, forgive me, you blankety blank. Everybody with me? It's literally what it means. 
But before he cursed David, the Bible says he disdained him. By the way, the word disdain, 1 Samuel 17, is the same Hebrew word that is translated reproach in Proverbs 14, 34. He reproached David. You say, what does that mean? Sin is a reproach. He disdained. It's the same Hebrew word, two different English words. What does it mean to disdain or reproach somebody? We think it means he had an attitude of disdain because that's how we use the word today. But the Hebrew term is not an attitude word. It's an action word. He is doing something. What's he doing? The word disdain, reproach, means literally, preacher, to minimize, to render insignificant, to make small, to put down. Before Goliath curses David, you know what he's doing? He's putting him down. How would he have done that, Dave, like this? You little pipsqueak, you. Look at your little spaghetti thin arms. Look at my muscles that would make Arnold drool with envy. You little pipsqueak. You're nothing but a blanket. Everybody with me? You know what? David doesn't pay any attention to any of that. He just keeps winding up. And God says, okay, now... And a rock like a laser beam hits him right here in the middle of the forehead. Wouldn't you love to have been there like a fly on a tent wall and watch old Goliath teeter? And then hit the ground. Can you see the servant? King, 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 king. Little guy, big guy, down. Come, you got to come see this. And the Bible says David didn't have a sword. So he ran and stood on his victim. Took Goliath's sword. Cut off Goliath's head and killed him. Held the head up. And the route is on. Can I hear an amen? By the way, preacher, the Bible says that the children of Israel been cowering in their tents, got out of their tents, and pursued the Philistines to the gates of Ekron. Ekron's 18 miles away. They chased those boys for 18 miles. Can I hear an amen? And leading the charge was a teenage boy. Wow. Now, folk, watch. Righteousness... Elevates to a prominent place a nation and keeps it there. Sin is a, what's the word again? Sin reduces to nothing. Sin minimizes. Sin makes small. Sin renders insignificant. Any people. There's no exception. Wow. Preacher, I hear a lot from men Oh, I'm struggling at work with my thought life. I'm struggling with what a view on the computer. One guy said, you know, there's a girl who works in the front office and she has these exotic smelling perfumes and she's very attractive and I'm finding my heart being drawn to her. Let me say something to you guys. Listen to me. Sin will never help you. Amen. It'll never take you up. It'll never elevate you. It'll never better your status in life. Sin always takes people down. Those that go to hell don't go up to hell. They go down to hell to the sides of the pit. By means of a whorish woman, the Bible says in Proverbs, a man is not bettered. A man is reduced to a piece of bread. Sin takes you down. And that's what sin does to a nation. Preacher, at one time, people didn't dare come to America, stand up at the United Nations. By the way, I've been there. I've stood on the platform. They didn't used to come there, which is, by the way, still on American soil. Two-bit third-world dictators like Hugo Chavez. What a piece of work. 
They didn't dare come to that place and stand on that platform on American soil and put America down and call us the great Satan like some of the Muslim leaders have done. They didn't dare do that because they were afraid of America. And by the way, and forgive me, I'm not trying to be political. I'm just going to say it. By the way, I hate politics. It's a compound word, you know, poly, many ticks, blood, sick, and insect. I hate it. But I love civil government, and we'd better get out and vote come November. And we'd better vote as biblically as we possibly can. And it better not be on the personality of the person we're voting for. My dad used to say this, son, don't you vote for a person. Don't you vote for their personality. He said, don't you vote for a party. He said, you vote principle. You find out the principles, the policies they're going to implement. And you find out which ones are closestly aligned with the Bible. And you cast your ballot there. I've always tried to do that. What I'm trying to say is this, folk. We're in a battle for our future in America. And what's happening is America is being systematically reduced because of our sin. It's not the Democrats did it to us. not the Republicans did it to us. Our sin's doing it to us. Now, sin can find its way into a political party and in some political parties can find better expression there because they endorse sin. But sin's the culprit. Sin's the culprit. Sin will reduce us to nothing. Brother Davis, their hope, hang on to your seatbelt. Preacher, um, March of this year was four years since this happened. Some of you may remember this. I was sitting home. It was a Saturday night, much like last night. And it wasn't 4th of July. It was in March. But I was sitting at home and I was watching the news. And I happened to be watching Fox News. And all of you know the little ticker, the little ticker that goes across the bottom of the screen on Fox News and CNN and MSNBC. It kind of gives you, you know, what they're going to go and cover coming up. You know, something's happening here. We're going to get a reporter on the scene. And they'll kind of give you a little ticker along the bottom of the screen. Well, I saw go across the little ticker, attempted bombing in Times Square. Any of you remember this? Within minutes, they had a reporter on the scene. There in the distance, they have the camera focused on it, is a Nissan Pathfinder SUV. There is smoke billowing out of the Pathfinder. Any of, you, any of you now remember, more of you remember this? And the story began to emerge that they think that inside that Nissan Pathfinder is some explosives and a guy had taken his cell phone and he had wired the thing you know, to his cell phone and he had walked two blocks away. He was going to push a button on his cell phone, expect to ignite that SUV and literally blow up a significant portion of Times Square. Well, as I'm watching that, they begin to report the detonator went off. Preacher, that's where the smoke came from. The detonation, it was wired correctly. It just didn't ignite the following material. That old boy had three red gasoline cans filled with gasoline. He had three large red propane cylinders loaded to the brim with propane, had boxes of nails and ball bearings to form the shrapnel so that when it exploded, it'd blow all that material in every direction, sever limbs from people's body, kill people, and just wreak havoc. Any of you remember what I'm talking about now? As I'm watching that, and they're saying... He must have wired it correctly. The detonator went off, hence the smoke. It just didn't, and it takes nothing to ignite propane. I've been around propane working with it all my life. You don't have a lit cigarette around propane. So I picked up my cell phone. I have a friend who was 25 years in the FBI in New York City. His name's Niles Light. 
counterterrorism expert. I called him. I said, Niles, I know you're not a ballistics expert, but are you watching the news tonight? He said, Dave, I am. I said, let me ask you a question. I know this is not your area of expertise so, so much, but I know you know something about it. I said, it sounds like to me from what they're reporting that that old boy wired the detonation system right. He hit his cell phone. It ignited the igniter, but for some reason, unexplainable, it did not ignite the volatile material, and it takes nothing to set gasoline and especially propane off. Help me understand what's going on. And my FBI friend said this, quote, there is no human explanation. There's no human explanation. Dave, he said it should have gone off. I said, why didn't it? He said, I don't know. But he said, I can tell you this. If it had, you and I would be having a different conversation right now. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, if that had gone off, those nails and ball bearings from the percussion of the explosion, it would have blown down, out, up. He said, Dave, and it was thousands of people. It was a warm March evening. Everywhere in Times Square. He said, Dave, I can promise you this. It'll level to city block plus. And he said it'll made 9-11 look, his words, not mine. It'll made 9-11 look like a Sunday school picnic. But it didn't go off. I said, thank you, my brother. Hung up. I sat at my computer. I have an email prayer team. And I just typed as fast as my little bony fingers would type. Typed a little email and said, folk, if you're watching the news tonight, you know a catastrophe was averted tonight in Times Square. Hit sin. There were over 600 people on that prayer team. Took about five minutes for it to ultimately go. About five minutes later, I had my first response back from a lady named Kathy. She lives in Lenore, North Carolina. She said, Preacher, I'm assuming you're unaware, which I was. She said, I'm assuming you're unaware of what was going on in Washington, D.C. today. I said, I have no clue. Tap, tap, tap. I have no clue what you're talking about. She said, well, I was there. This is how I know what was going on. She said, there was a prayer meeting held at the Lincoln Memorial, and they had a pulpit there, and they had a microphone from the way she described it, about just like this one. And she said, you know what they did? Preacher, they picked a person for each state. 50 people, one to represent each of the 50 states, somebody from Alabama, somebody from Arkansas, somebody from Alaska, and they had them come, and they had them stand behind the pulpit, and they had them pray and confess the sin of their state. You say, preacher, like what kind of sins? Like allowing immorality to run rampant? Like spending ourselves into oblivion? Folk, do you know, if we started the day Jesus was born and we spent a million dollars a day, you're hearing me correctly, we spent money at a million dollar a day clip from the day Jesus was born until right now, 2020. A million dollars a day for over 2,000 years. If we spent money at that rate, do you know we would have not yet spent one trillion dollars? Eight hundred and some billion and change. And as I'm talking to you, before the stimulus added four trillion, almost five to it, we were 23 trillion in debt. Have you figured out, because, I mean, if you know how to do this, talk to me. I need your help. I've never figured out how to spend my way to prosperity. I've never figured out how to do that. Save my way to prosperity. Yeah, spend my, I, that, I don't, if you can make that work, help me. We've lost our minds in this country, haven't we? So 50 people, this lady, Kathy, said, walk behind that. She said it took four hours. She said there were 5,000 people at that prayer meeting. She said, now, here's my question. Boy, was it a great one. She said, Preacher, do you think there's a connection between what was going on in D.C. and what did not happen in New York? She said, what I mean by that is, do you think God took note of a handful, 5,000 people praying in D.C. and he heard their prayers of repentance and confession and kept that thing from blowing up in New York? Preacher, I'm not kidding. I've, I had a spell. I got, I'm running around my office shouting, Yes! Yes! 
typed her back. I said, you've hit the nail on. She said, but it's just 5,000. We're a country of 330 million. I said, God's never needed. God's never used the majority to do anything. He's always used a remnant. A handful. Gideon's 300. He's always used a remnant to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Yes. Is there hope for America? You bet. And you know what? The hope is in this room. If my people, the ones called by my name, they'll humble themselves, pray, seek my faith. They'll turn from their wicked way. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. We need a lot of healing in America, don't we? By the way, last night, United We Stand, beautiful image, white police officer standing with his arm around a black attendee that black attendee, his arm around the white police officer, and the black attendee is holding an American flag, and they're praying together. Wow, that's the America I know. That's the America I know. Wow. And by the way, on top of that, 12 people got saved last night. Can I hear an amen? That we know of. At least 12 that we know of. Father, would you speak to us this morning? Lord, there's a powerful principle ensconced in Proverbs 14, 34 that righteousness elevates to a prominent place a nation, keeps it there. But sin reduces to nothing any people. Father, I somehow, way, think that we in America have thought that we're the exception to that powerful principle found in the Word of God. But Lord, there, is, there are no exceptions. We're not one. So Father, I pray we'd understand we're at a crossroads unlike any we've ever faced in America. We've had tough times in the past. We've had divided times in the past. But Lord, we've never faced an onslaught from Marxists and socialists and those that are intent on turning America inside out, not just removing Confederate statues. That's not the focus at all. Lord, it's they're trying to remove every aspect and vestige of our history. They're going after Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and Christopher Columbus. And Lord, just like in Daniel 1 where the nourishment and the names of Hebrew children were changed and Nebuchadnezzar tried to erase their godly heritage, we're watching it unfold in front of us, an attempt to erase America's godly heritage. Father, I pray we would not allow that to happen. And Lord, our voices are nothing really by themselves, but Lord, there's something significant when they're elevated and lifted together. But Lord, beyond that, when our voice is empowered by your Holy Spirit, then one voice can become like a trumpet sound. And Lord, it can literally revolutionize and change the course of a nation's history for good. So Father, I pray that my dear friends that are seated in this auditorium today will have understood what's been said. That righteousness elevates, sin reduces to nothing. And Lord, may we get incredibly serious with you to the point that we're willing to do something about what we now know. And Father, we'll thank you. Friends, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I want to ask you just a candid question. Have you understood what the Word of God said today? Righteousness elevates a nation. Sin reduces to nothing any people. Have you understood the principle? If you have, are you willing to now do something about what you know? Would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to say to the God of heaven, God, I get it. 
I I understand it. Righteousness elevates to a prominent place. A nation keeps it there. But sin reduces to nothing any people. Lord, I get it. I see it happening in my country. And Lord, I understand it so clearly that I'm willing to ask something of you, Lord. This is vitally important, friends. Number one, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me of any sin in my life. And then, Lord, number two, once you've forgiven me, use me. Folks, this is so important. Please hear me. Use me as a conduit, a channel through whom you can work unhindered to facilitate revival in America. Revival in my home, my church, my community, my state, and yes, Lord, even my nation. Forgive me, Lord, and then use me as a channel through whom you can work, through whom you can flow unhindered to bring revival to my home, my church, my community, my state, my nation. Folk, we had a great awakening in the 1700s. We had a second great awakening in the 1800s. Nationwide revivals. We did not have a great awakening in the 1900s. And here we are at 2020. We're in desperate need of a third great awakening. You're the key. We are the key. So I want to ask you if you would be willing to do this. If you'd be willing to say, Lord, I get it, I understand it. I want to ask you to forgive me and then, Lord, use me as a conduit, a channel through whom you can work unhindered to bring revival. If you'd be willing to pray that to the Lord and mean it, I'm going to ask you to do something. Would you be willing to get up from where you're currently seated and find yourself a spot around this altar and pray that to the Lord and ask Him to forgive and then use you as a channel? God bless you, sir. God bless you, ma'am. God bless you, sir and ma'am. And you, sir, and you, sir, and you, dear couple. God bless you, sir, and you, ma'am. God bless you, young people. God bless you, folks. Forgive me. And then God used me as a channel through whom you can work unhindered in the cause of revival. Folk, God sends the revival, but He always uses people. And He's looking for people through whom He can work unhindered. We're it. We're it. God, forgive me. And then, Lord, use me as a channel through whom you can work unhindered to bring revival. God's the one who sends a revival, but the conduit is people. He works through people. Every revival that's ever occurred in the world has had people that have been strategically used as facilitators of what God wanted to do. In this day and time, All I want to be is a fanner of God's flame. I just want to fan the flame. I want to come to Calvary Baptist and just kind of fan the flame. Say, oh God, use us. Take us to a new level. Increase the fervency and the intensity of the flame in my heart. Fan the flame. Friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, may I tell you God loves you. Jesus died on an old rugged cross, the only son God had, and he sent him to die, be buried, and rise again the third day to forgive your sin. Sir, if you don't know him, ma'am, if you don't know him, we'd love nothing more than to introduce you to Jesus, the greatest friend you'll ever have, the one that can forgive your sin. You could get up. I'll meet you right down front. We'll put someone with you, show you how you can know Christ. Please don't leave if you're not sure of your eternal destiny. I'll be at the back. I'd love to talk to you. Pastor will be there. 
please let us have the opportunity to share Jesus with you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the power of your word. Lord, this simple verse, two statements, but eternally profound in the impact. And I thank you and praise you. Father, I pray we'd live in light of what we've heard today. May we understand, oh Lord, you're not done with America. You're not done by any means. Lord, we've sinned against you heinously, but you're a God rich in mercy. Lord, if I didn't believe you'd have mercy and sin revival, I'd sure be doing something else. But Lord, I believe you can and I believe you will if we'll just get serious with you. So Father, bring us to that place and it's more than fitting on this 4th of July that Lord, we're meeting on the Sunday after our American birthday to listen to your word. So God, work, I pray in a powerful way and for this I'll thank you. In Jesus' name I do pray. And all God's people who prayed with me said, look up at me just a moment. I want to leave you. You may be seated if you want. One final thing I want to share with you. In Washington, D.C. is a five-sided building called the Pentagon. Penta means five. It is the largest low-level office facility in the known world. 28,000 people work there every day. Three to 5,000 people visit that facility every single day. We've done two crusades inside that building in a five-acre courtyard in the center of the building. It was absolutely awesome. When we did our first crusade there, the Pentagon chaplain, deputy chaplain by the name of Ralph Ralph Pommelville, took me to the spot where the plane came into the building on 9-11-01. It was on the second floor of the E-ring. The E-ring is the outer five walls of the building. E-D-C-B-A. The E-ring is where all your top brass are. All your military personnel that are the top brass are in the E-ring because they have windows that can see out to the city of D.C. And that plane came in at about 400 and some miles an hour, actually belly flopped, actually hit a helicopter pad in the parking lot of the Pentagon, knocking over light poles at 400 miles an hour, just clipping them as it came in. Belly flopped, slowed it down just a tad, and then it came up into the building. If you've watched the videos, I've watched them over and over and over. I've stood at the spot where the nose came into the building. The deputy chaplain said, Dave, what most Americans don't know, I didn't know till then, but I share it with everybody I can. He said, Dave, in 1944, this building, the Pentagon was constructed, and ironically, it was a total coincidence, I'm sure the terrorists didn't know this, it was dedicated in September 11, 1944. That date, just September 11, I'm sure was a coincidence. But he said, it was hastily built in the middle of a world war, which we were in in 1944. And he said, so Dave, there's a lot of parts of this building that are not meeting 2001 code. Certainly wouldn't meet 2020 code. But he said in 2001, early part of it, early part of the year, our military leaders under the Bush administration realized this building's a target. So what they started doing is renovating the E-ring, bringing the five exterior E-ring walls up to 2001 code, which means steel and concrete reinforcing them so they could withstand a potential attack like we sustained. He said, but Dave, by 9-11-01, September 11-01, only one exterior wall had been renovated. The other four had not. And then he began to weep and smile. He said, one adventure, a wild guest, which wall they flew the plane into? The only one that had been steel and concrete reinforced. 
He said, Dave, if they'd have hit any of the other four walls, our internal estimates tell us the plane would have gone through the wall, through the D rings, through the C ring, through the B ring, through the A ring, halfway out the other side, igniting fires the whole way. He said, we believe, we believe we would have lost 10 to 12,000 of the 28,000 who work here. He said, we could have never recovered from that. It was the best that would have died. He said, because they hit the one wall they did, 167 people, all of whom their life being lost was tragic, But he said 167 people died. And then he said this, and I've never forgotten it. He said, even in God's wrath, he remembered mercy. Even in God's wrath, he remembered mercy. Is there hope for America? You bet your life there is. Let's get serious with the God of heaven, shall we? Well, have you enjoyed the service today?